0: You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. All right, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Great to see you. Like no pressure, fresh in from Israel for a special, holy, <laughs> not put you to sleep sermon. <clears throat> Hey, I want to add to Matt's uh, welcome. If you're new with us at Hope, we're just really glad you're here. That's a sincere statement. We're really glad you're here. We want you to be here, and we hope you're encouraged by being here. So welcome. So I shared with a couple of buddies of mine who pastor churches around the country that we're doing a sermon series on angels. Angels. And these are guys who are, you know, very experienced in ministry life. They've been preaching all their careers. And they're basically like, What? Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I know, right? I'm still not sure. Like what what? Like, what are we doing? So you'll probably pick up, even though we're four weeks in and this is our last week, that I'm still like, angels? Like, what are we doing? Before we do that, let's pray, okay? Father in heaven, would you help us make a transition here from the ordinary to the holy, from texts and full calendars and logistics in our minds and Thanksgiving plans and relationships and family and friends and those spinning swirly places? Would you help us just come into your presence? Would you help us join the angels who worship you? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Father, we pray in the wounds of our broken world. We pray for the UVA community. We pray for healing from this tragedy of these murders we pray for the families of these young men who have lost young men so beautiful full of promise and future and we grieve I feel like the scriptures saying Rachel weeping for her children not only Lord do we weep for these young men and their families we weep for our nation and we ask your forgiveness for embracing the violent spirit that seems to permeate us in so many places. Would you forgive us and would you heal us of this spirit of violence through your power, your presence, and your peace, Lord Jesus Christ? Speak to each of us in any ways or places that we need to trade the kingdom of the fallenness of this world for the peace and the beauty of your kingdom. So we ask for your healing, Lord. We lift our wounds and particularly those closest who feel these wounds most deeply. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're concluding today. And uh, I happen to, have week one and week four, so I get to kind of bookend the experience of this sermon series. Uh, Wes in week two, uh, one of the things I loved about Wes was his uh, job description for an angel, if you were here or if you saw it online, and with Kyle Friedman giving us this passionate assurance that the victory belongs to God. And so today we're wrapping up this series on angels. So I think the anchor verse of it, without us identifying it in advance, I can now see it as we're coming to the last week, has really become Hebrews 1.14. It's this simple little phrase, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Okay, so it's a rhetorical question. You could flip it. Yes, Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Okay? That's a lot of good clarity, and it's a lot of good mystery. And that's where we live when we do a sermon series on angels. This is why some of my buddies around the country are like, are you crazy? Like a sermon series on angels. Like, right. So I said, yeah, we probably are a little crazy, but there are plenty of scriptural verses that speak about angels. As a reminder, over 300 of them. And Jesus spoke specifically about angels over 20 times. So this is how all of this coalesced to get my attention and made me think we've got to address and have an opportunity to see what the scriptures are teaching about angels. Okay? So they are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. All right. So because we're in the last week and we're wrapping up and it's like, okay, it's the last shot at it for this series. I'm going to cover a bunch of different scripture verses, but I think they roughly fall into two categories. First category is angels and us. Second category is angels and Jesus. So first part, angels and us. What do we do with angels? What's the right placement of angels in our lives? How are we supposed to engage or understand angels? And I think it's a reasonable question because, as I've said throughout the series and the guys have said the last couple of weeks, we have enough clarity to say angels are absolutely real. They are created by God, they minister to those who will inherit salvation. But all of that raises like dozens and dozens and dozens of more questions, many of which the Bible doesn't give us specific answers to. So this is where we're living in this gray. And in the gray, of course, we're invited to trust God. Okay, so a right placement with angels. The right placement would be that we don't make the angels too low or too high. That we are appropriately positioned with them. If you read Matt Hartman's email this past week, he referred to this idea as well. That we don't make the angels too low. Here's what I think we are prone to do. We make angels cute spiritual pets. And we sort of have little cutesy experiences with them. And we have little fun, warm, you know, anything from a bookmark in your Bible to a little print on your wall. And you know, the angels are usually cute and they're usually friendly. And in so doing, we we make them kind of spiritual pets. But in the Bible, they are frequently fierce and frequently intimidating and depicted as warriors and an army. So when we make them spiritual pets, we made them too low. We've we've missed it. No good. No bueno. Okay, so then the other option is we make them too high. That would be that we worship them or pray to them or venerate them. Or you're going to make some like little figurines of angels and put them somewhere in your house where you pray. And you're going to particularly draw your attention to them. Some people variously are inclined to this kind of thing. So we mentioned that there are three named angels in the Bible. One is Michael, generally depicted as a warrior. One is Gabriel, generally depicted as a messenger. And then there's Lucifer, also known as Satan, who challenged God's authority and was expelled from heaven. Those are the three that are named. But the Bible tells us there are ten thousands times ten thousands of angels, So millions, I think, is the point that is trying to be made. But you don't worship or pray to angels. So for instance, let's say you're in a tough spot. You wouldn't pray to Michael and ask for him to come rescue and give you help. That would be venerating or giving glory or devotion to an angel where we are called to give this devotion to God alone. To God alone, that's important. Could you ask God? to send an angel for help and protection? I suppose you could, but the main point is our veneration and our appeal is to God alone, that we don't start embracing these other sort of creatures and making them part of some kind of growing pantheon of spiritual appeal. Our prayers, our veneration, our worship, our adoration, our devotion goes to God alone. Okay, so we don't lift the angels to a place of height, which beckons our worship or our prayers, but we also don't make them so low that we've turned them into like spiritual pets. So Psalm 8 has a little reference for this. It says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Okay, so Psalm 8 makes it clear that we as human beings, at least in this earthbound life, are a little lower than the angels. Okay, so I know what that beckons. Well, what about when we're in heaven? We don't have clear answers to that. Okay, so not too high, not too low. Angels and us, number one, right placement, not too high, not too low. Don't make them pets and don't worship them or pray to them. They operate on God's beck and call, and they serve God's purposes and God's sovereignty, sovereignty, not ours. Okay, how about this? When you start reading Matthew chapter 13, this is a collection of Jesus' teaching on the parables of the kingdom. Okay, if you want to go read it this week, you'll catch up to this. But a number of the kingdom parables talk about this basic idea. There's a huge catch, a big in-gathering, and then when Jesus returns, which he promises to do, there's a sorting and a sifting out. Okay, so for instance, Jesus says something like this, the kingdom of heaven is like a big field, and both wheat and tares grew up in it together. And when Jesus returns, the wheat and the tares will be separated out. The wheat will be held onto, and the tares dispatched, okay? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that got let down in the sea. And the net comes out of the sea, and it's full of all kinds of fish. So this idea of the kingdom is big catches. When Jesus returns, a lot of sorting and sifting happens. If you're thinking, wow, I didn't really know about that, or I never really thought about that. It's Matthew 13 that has a lot of teaching on this. What I find that's really interesting is Jesus says, that harvest, that sorting and sifting, that harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. How about that? Let's read it together. Matthew thirteen thirty-seven thirty-nine. 39, he replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed represents the sons of its kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil, The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. In Matthew 25, Jesus said, I referred to it in week one, that when he returns, he will come with all the angels. Exactly what's that going to be like? I can't tell you exactly, but we're given enough pictures to know that it is awesome. So the harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Those who are righteous, that is sincerely in faith in Christ, are drawn into the kingdom. Those that are not are not. That's hard to say in today's world. We feel like, oh, that's old-fashioned stuff. All I can tell you is it's very clear biblical content for us to pay attention to. The harvesters are angels. So interesting. They're given this super important task. Okay. How about the idea of personal assignment? Okay, like you've heard me say it, but I still can't quite get out of it. Like some of these ideas of angels, when I have heard about them over time, they're just like a little too cute. And then I start reading the scriptures and I'm like, there's a whole bunch of content here that completely legitimizes the veracity of angels. Okay, so what about personal assignment? AKA a guardian angel. Okay? Like, you have a guardian angel. I have a guardian angel. All right, so honestly, I'm like, that's a little too cute. I mean, that's just, mm, eh, mm, mm, no. <laughs> okay? Somebody said, well, David, are there angels? Yes, definitely. Well, then you have a guardian angel, right? Mm. Okay, and then you read this. Jesus is teaching, and there's a little child there, and he calls the little child to himself, and he does some teaching about how to enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to enter with the heart of a child. And then he says in Matthew 18, See that you don't despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, like I'm amazed when I read this. I'm just being honest. I guess you can tell that by now, okay. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Their angels. In heaven, always see the face of my Father in heaven. The word there is not T H E R E, like there are angels in heaven. It's there, like E I R, like possessive. Their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Okay, there is no doubt that Jesus is clearly saying that these little ones have angels. Assigned to them. Like you can't get around it. They're angels in heaven. Okay, so I got a bunch of questions here, and maybe you do too. Like, is this a one on one assignment? Like, does every little kid have one specific angel who's their guardian angel? That would be a stretch. I couldn't teach you that. It's a question. I wonder about it because we're given hints about this. And then I'm like, well, See so that you don't despise these little ones. I tell you, they're angels. Like, so do you only have an angel if you're like a little one? Well, how old are you when you outgrow your angel? Like, are you six or eight? Or are you 80 or 90? We don't know. But again, this is Jesus talking, and he is clearly connecting the idea of angels to people. Oh, is there like a ratio of an assignment? Like, one angel has 100 little kids? we don't know. But here's what is being stressed from Jesus. This little phrase, their angels always see the face of my father in heaven, it's a significant literary idea. What it's speaking about is the idea of a king and to go into the presence of the king, to be able to look the king face to face, was a position of extraordinarily privileged access. Like Nobody except a very, very, very few people with extraordinary access could actually stand in the presence of the king and look at them face to face. And Jesus is saying that these angels stand in the presence of God, his Father in heaven, face to face. So here are these angels connected to the care, it says little ones, connected to the care of little ones. And they have face-to-face access with God. I got a hundred more questions, but after that, I think it's all speculation. Questions like, well, why does this happen to a little child? Then why didn't this child get protected? Then what happened? Don't know. But Jesus is making it clear that there is a personal assignment connection. I don't know if it's one-on-one, one one to a hundred, one to a million, one to a thousand. I don't know. But there is some clear statement of personal assignment. Okay, so one thing that's very interesting to me is that nowhere in the Bible does it say that God offers redemption to fallen angels, okay? God offers a beautiful plan of salvation to fallen people, but nowhere does it mention that fallen angels are given the opportunity for redemption, okay? Why is that? I don't really know. I've got questions about it. Is it because they have seen God so clearly and still rejected him that there is no provision for redemption for them? I don't know. Is it that their form of rebellion is so significant under the leadership of the devil that there is no opportunity for redemption for them? I don't know. But nowhere in the Bible is it suggested that fallen angels are given an opportunity for redemption. Where that takes me is a whole bunch of gratitude that we fallen people are given the opportunity for redemption, and that he would offer us this opportunity in Christ, and we'll get to that in a minute. Okay, how are we similar to angels? Another enigmatic batch of verses, Luke 20, 35 and 6, reads this way. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage and they can no longer die for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Okay, so I think this risks us making angels spiritual pets or making us spiritual chums with angels. What it's suggesting is that when we die, we are like the angels. This does not mean you get wings. This does not mean when you die, ooh, another angel got its wings. That's not a biblical idea. What's being emphasized here, when we die, we're like the angels. Why? Because we are resurrected and now we are eternal. We will live eternally. Angels apparently live eternally. So when we're resurrected and enter eternal life, that's how we're like the angels. Now again, it raises a hundred questions. Can we do what angels do? What about these capabilities? What about that? We don't know. The scripture doesn't give us that. I'm trying to stick with what's clear. Here's what's clear. When we are raised and resurrected, we are like the angels. In what way that we are eternal and have eternal life like angels do? Okay, okay. How about angels having evangelistic joy? There's a phrase. So in Luke chapter 15, we read, in the same way I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In other words, when a person comes home to faith in Jesus, repents of their sin and of self, opens their life to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, life that's really life, you know what happens? The angels have a massive celebration. I wonder if we have that kind of evangelistic joy. I wonder if we have that kind of evangelistic heartbeat, understanding what's at stake. A human life has moved from darkness to life, from death to life. A human life has come home into a reconciled relationship with our creator who made us. And when that happens and a person says yes to Jesus, there's a massive celebration among the angels in heaven. May it be so in Christ's church as well that we would have the kind of evangelistic joy that the angels have. Okay, so angels tend to God's glory and they worship him. They guide people, they help people. They rescue, they instruct They are very purposeful. Angels are never casual. You don't ever read an account in the Bible that says, and an angel appeared, and he said to the angel, what are you doing? And the angel said, I have no idea. You never read that. What are you doing? I don't know, just sitting around waiting for the next train to come. You never read that. The angels are very purposeful. They're always on assignment. Purposeful particularly for the end goal of the union of human hearts to the beauty of the glory of God. Okay, so let's talk now about angels and Jesus. Remember that there is no witness in the scriptures that fallen angels are given the opportunity for redemption, but God has a plan for the redemption of fallen human beings, you and me. And this plan will be worked out when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, enters the world, fully God, fully man, lives a human life in perfect obedience to God, and then dies the ultimate sacrificial death, both God and man, on that cross to bring about our forgiveness. Okay, so let's talk for a moment about where we see angels, particularly in Jesus' life, at pivotal moments. The first most obvious one, perhaps, and particularly with Christmas coming up and Advent starting next weekend, is Luke chapter 2. This is the birth announcement of the angels to the shepherds in the shepherd's fields outside of Bethlehem. It's the largest outpouring of angelic expression that we see sent to earth when we read in the scriptures. Suddenly, note the word, suddenly, like there was no warm-up. Hey, shepherds, in about 15 minutes, be ready, because the angels are going to be coming to give you a message. Suddenly, no warning. This is a frequently consistent thing that we see with angels. No warning. Had no idea they were coming. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you'll recognize him by this sign. You'll find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Okay, so that apparently is one angel to the shepherds, radiating glory, and they're terrified. The suggestion from commentators that this is Michael, the warrior. And so the shepherds are terrified when they see him. But then, note the word suddenly again, Verse 13, suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Okay, so in a very broad macro sense, that's the job description depiction of angels, that they bring glory to God in the highest heaven and they're always moving, working, to bring and to minister and serve those who will inherit salvation, to bring them to a peace, reconciled relationship with God and one another. Okay, so the birth announcement is the great big first outpouring of the angels. Okay, the prospect that the Savior, the Son of God, who's come into the world, who will bring salvation as an opportunity for all fallen human beings, that prospect is now at hand, but looming is a dot, dot, dot of the pending battles with the tempter. The one who challenged God to begin with was expelled from heaven with all of his minions. And when Christ is born into the world, it's a beautiful moment with a haunting dot, dot, dot. How's it going to work out? What's going to happen? For him to be able to bring about the redemption of fallen human beings, he has to live a fully obedient and sinless life. So the tempter appears. In Matthew chapter 4, after Satan has tempted Jesus, and Luke chapter 4 has it as well, turn the stones to bread, jump off the temple, angels will guard you, bow down and I'll give you all the kingdoms of heaven. After all that tempting, Jesus says to the devil, Away from me, Satan, Jesus declared. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and ministered to him. When the angels come and minister to Jesus, it is a big moment. It's a crucible crossroads. It's an essential road where salvation is in question. And when he wins the moment, the angels come and they minister to him. So the first great temptation, Satan is going to appeal to Jesus to get the glory. He's basically saying worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. He's basically saying do incredible things and get all the glory. And you know what, we're all tempted by this. Get the glory. Make yourself famous. Become the kind of person that people talk about. Make enough money that people will admire you. The get the glory thing, get the job that's gonna make people stand up and take notice. Accomplish the athletic feat that's going to be written about in the paper and online. Get the glory. Get the glory. It's a huge temptation. And Satan is going to tempt Jesus to get the glory. And Jesus, in perfect obedience, denies him that. Temptation number one, get the glory. And in perfect obedience, Jesus turns down those temptations. In Luke chapter 4, you have this very haunting phrase. The devil, after he had tempted him, left him until a more opportune time. It says in Luke chapter 4. The second of the great temptations is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has had the Passover meal with the disciples. He's now gone across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. It's this moment of testing. He knows the cross is in front of him a place of excruciating pain and suffering. And guess who shows up in the Garden of Gethsemane? Satan, to tempt him. Luke 22. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, where he knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. This is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. The cup he's speaking about is the figurative cup of wrath that he is going to take God's wrath upon him, dying on a cross, the sin that we deserved, that we would get his status of holiness. But the suffering is going to be excruciating. Jesus is praying, God, if there's another way, can you do this another way? And then I think the most towering prayer of the Bible in this simple, deepest of sentences ever uttered, yet not my will but yours be done. When Jesus prays that prayer, he will not succumb to the temptation to turn away from the suffering. He will enter it. He will face it head on. He will go there for the redemption of fallen human beings. And note verse 43. When he comes out with that statement of obedience, then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And in his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. The first temptation was to get the glory. That's a rather superficial, invite you to the heights temptation. The next one is to avoid the pain. That's a deeper, more central, visceral kind of temptation. It's as though Satan whispers to him to sabotage the plan of salvation. This is going to really hurt, you know. You're not going to want to experience this, you know. All you have to do is turn away from the pain of this cross and you can avoid all of that excruciating suffering, you know. It's like brutal scenes in hard movies when somebody's being tortured and the torturer says... I know you just want it to stop. And in the midst of that excruciating crucible, Jesus Christ says, Not my will, God, but yours be done. The first temptation where Jesus is victorious is the temptation to get the glory. The second temptation where Jesus is victorious is the temptation to avoid the pain and the suffering. And in both cases, Jesus denies the tempter and stays in perfect obedience to his Father in heaven, which is indeed what makes it possible for us fallen human beings to be redeemed from the loving heart of God. And note that in all of these cases, the angels are present. The angels tend to him. The angels care for him in these crucible tests and moments that he passes each time. And then finally, that victorious morning when the tomb is empty, when Jesus' obedience and suffering on the cross has met God's perfect celebrational vindication. He's been raised from the dead. Our sins really are forgiven. Heaven really is our home. The victory of the resurrection It says, the disciples returned to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she bent down to look into the tomb, and note, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the foot. I've always thought that it must have been like looking at the Ark of the Covenant. The Old Testament Ark of the Covenant was that box that had the cherubim, one on each end. That box was the story of God's redemptive work for his people Israel in the past. And now when Mary goes to the tomb and she sees an angel both at the head and the feet of where Jesus would have laid, I can't help but imagine it would have looked like the Ark of the Covenant. But now, now that tomb is empty. Now that victory is sure. Now those angels are testifying to the fact that the victorious and obedient Jesus Is alive. So the stories about angels, they seem to have these consistent threads to them. After the sermon a couple of weeks ago, the first one of the series, a lot of people told me stories about experiences that they had had. And nobody's saying, I know for sure it was an angel, but we're given enough clarity and enough uh, mystery to be left wondering. So one of my friends told me about a friend of his who had had a drowning experience or a near drowning experience. He'd gotten caught in a riptide. He got taken out into the water that was well over his head. He's swimming, swimming, swimming. He realizes that the ocean is too strong for him. He's not going to beat it. He starts to sink. He's losing his breath and his energy and his strength. But he decides he's gotta pull himself up to try to get another breath. He comes back up to the top of the water. He can see around, he gets a breath. There's nobody anywhere near him. He keeps trying to swim, he gets too exhausted. He's going under the water again. The friend tells the story that he began to start thinking, this is not the way I thought I would die. I didn't think that drowning was gonna be the way my life was gonna come to an end. And as he's going under the water for a second time, he has this sense of peace, but also this strength that he needs to try again. And so he battles again, and he lifts his head above the water and gasps for a breath. And when he does, there's a guy coming toward him on a surfboard. And the guy on the surfboard says to him, you look like you're in trouble. Do you need help? He said, yes, 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 I need help. The guy on the surfboard gets off the board, and he lends the board over toward him. And the guy who's come up from the water for the second time holds onto the board and he's gasping for breath and he gets up his energy to climb on the board and he just lays on it knowing that he's safe for a moment and he looks to turn to thank the guy who brought it and there's nobody there. I've heard a whole bunch of stories like this. So it's Advent coming up, friends. It's a time of angelic outpouring. Because God in his love and in the power of his redemptive heart has sent his son into the world who has a challenging gauntlet of temptation that he will have to survive in order to be able to make our salvation and redemption possible. And each step along the way, our savior champion is obedient to the father, is ministered to by angels, and earns the victory at the empty tomb that's announced by angels themselves. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you and we feel small up against such heavenly realities. Our hearts want to say thank you, Lord, for your redemption, for your offer of redemption, for a reconciled relationship with you, our creator, our Father in heaven who loves us beyond our wildest dreams, Jesus Christ, Son of God, come into the world to offer salvation. We thank you. Your church thanks you. Your church celebrates you. Your church desires to worship you, that you would be pleased. The bride desires to be beautiful in your eyes. Father, help us, your church, to be obedient and beautiful in your eyes. And now receive our worship in Jesus' name, amen.